Seems like I'm getting a lot of surveys these days. Everybody wants to know my opinion on something. I get a survey from my bank if I do one transaction. I get, I paid our estimated taxes. I got a survey from the government. How did I like that? Would have liked it better if I didn't have to pay as much. I got a survey from uh, a, a local electronics store after buying something online. And even my dental hygienist sent me a survey after a teeth cleaning recently. People just want to know what we think. And so in that sort of spirit, uh, because I think my experience is not unique, I trust you guys are also being surveyed. So let me offer another survey, a little bit more of a focus for what's going on this year. What would you say is the most important thing that concerns you in our world today, in our world, in our country? Don't have to say it out loud. Just have that in mind. There's any number of candidates. Right now, we're in the uptick of an Omicron spike of COVID. We have increasing political polarization, any number of ways to measure what many people think is a social or cultural decline. There's racism in all its forms and persistent injustice, inflation that impacts people who don't have enough cushion to set them apart from the inflated prices of things. There's climate change. There's the decline of the church's influence. Many of these, when you read about them, are billed as existential threats, things that are threatening our very lives, our civilization, our nation, our democracy. And it's hard, I think, and I can't think of a time where a, a group of people, us, has had to navigate so many different challenges of an increasing amount of intensity in one period, juggling existential threats at one time. A column earlier this week in the New York Times by a commentator named David Brooks. Some of you may be familiar with him. He's been writing for quite a while. But he admits that when he looks at that landscape, he doesn't have any answers, which is remarkable for a commentator who's supposed to have answers. He says this, there's something darker and deeper that's happening. The long-term loss of solidarity, the long-term rise of estrangement and hostility. When I went to college, I never worried that I might say something in class that would get me ostracized. But now the college students I know fear that one errant sentence could lead to social death. What is going on? The short answer, he writes, is I don't know. There must be, he continues, some spiritual or moral problem at the core of this. As a columnist, I'm supposed to have answers, but I just don't right now. I just know that the situation is dire. And this is the world that we're in today and the world that our text in this season of Epiphany speak to. We don't want to fall into temptation to just think that the epiphany texts that speak, and today we'll be looking specifically at the wedding at Cana, that somehow that's just part of the epiphany thing, and, and we'll talk about the glory of the Lord, and we sang about his glory at Christmas, and now we put all that stuff back in the box and up in the attic, or wherever that is. No, these very texts speak to the world that we, we are in today, and the world that we're called to be in as believers and I love this reading, if you just recall what Cindy read in the Gospel of John. It says that, that that changing of the water into wine at this obscure place called Cana, 
was what Jesus did. John says it's the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. Like, what does that even mean to reveal his glory? And why would just changing water into wine do that? Now, if you're familiar with scripture, you know that it often speaks of glory. Glory as a concept is, is a word, it's kind of a shorthand word for understanding the majesty and the power and the presence of God. It says, you know, his presence filled the temple and the glory of God was upon them. There's something that's it's a combination of holiness and power and a brilliance and just this awe that produces a holy fear and a reverence on our part. I mentioned power a moment ago. The glory of God speaks of power. It speaks to the ways that the Lord makes the rough places smooth. That he sends his Messiah into this very world that we just surveyed. The world that we inhabit. And it says, Lord, where's, it asks the question, Lord, where's your power in this situation? Where's your power in these big things? Where's your power in the stuff that concerns me? Perhaps you weren't thinking when I asked the survey about something grand about what's going on in our society and our world right now. Maybe you're more in touch with just something that's going on right in your own life. Very understandable. We all came in here this afternoon thinking about stuff going on at work, things going on in our families, stuff that we have in our health situation, extended family members that are going through hard things, friends that are suffering for whatever reason. It's a combination of things that we all share in common in the, because we inhabit the same world and the same area, and then just things going on in our own life. But the glory of the Lord, the power of the Lord, is what John is talking about in the wedding at Cana. It's, it's a really interesting display of God's power. We just sort of unpack that for a minute. Only John records this miracle, this sign, as it were. I, I don't know why it didn't make the list in the Synoptic Gospels. Maybe it was just sort of too obscure. I mean, after all, what is he doing? He's in this remote location. He's in rural uh, Palestine, rural, rural Judea, and he, in a town called Cana at an everyday event. Weddings were... And every day, so, well, every Saturday, I don't know, whenever they had them, social occurrence. And he's a guest, and his mother is a guest, and the disciples are guests. And she comes, and she says, they have no wine. And he, if you look at the text, isn't really expecting to be kind of brought into this whole thing. What has this got to do with me? Not really a rebuke of his mother so much as it's like, head-scratching question, like, why, why do you involve me, is what he specifically asks. But she doesn't really pay much attention to that because there's no reply that's recorded. She just instructs the servant, do whatever he tells you. And so John is recording this as the first sign because Jesus is coming. The glory that he's referring to is that Jesus comes with power. He comes with the power that the creator God has. Some early, uh, trans, uh, some early commentators from centuries before saw some connection from the Old Testament to New Testament times. That the, purifi- the jugs that had the purification in the, represented the Old Testament, represented the law, which was the way that you got right with God. But Jesus is turning that water into new wine. He is making it that sacred wine that will reflect and foreshadow his sacrifice, which we will celebrate in Holy Communion in a few minutes. I think that's a valid interpretation. But most commentators are focused on the fact that he is the creator God. 
Jesus is, is manifesting himself the way God the Father did. Remember, Colossians 1 amplifies that whole concept when it says the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In him, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all the stuff that occupies our media and our minds that is going on outside our world, all these things have been created through him and for him. And so when Jesus comes with this display of power, even in this obscure setting and this, this thing that isn't really this big miraculous healing, it says a lot about who he is. It is the revelation, the manifestation of Jesus as the member of the creator God. And he is doing in this, he is doing something that people at this wedding cannot do for themselves. They are flat out of wine. That's a big social faux pas, to say the least. It's an embarrassment for the family. It's like, wow, I can't believe you guys ran out of wine. What? How can you think we'd all be here? If you watch the series, The Chosen, they actually amplify this. They focus. Uh, they kind of create their own backstory. Not biblical, but kind of interesting and curious. And they basically, they, their version of it was a whole lot of guests kind of gate rush the, the wedding. And so now they've run out. We don't know why they ran out. But Mary is concerned and she goes to her son and just explains, doesn't even explain, just says. And when Jesus does that changing of water into wine, he is manifesting his glory. He is manifesting that, that aspect of God that creates and recreates, that does something that we cannot do for ourselves when we need it to be done. That's glory. That's what I call everyday glory. Why do I call it everyday? Because this is who Jesus is. He goes throughout over the course of the next three years doing these very things, recreating, recreating people who are sick into people who are well. Recreating people, uh, recreating people, not people, but situations where folks are going to go hungry like at the feeding of the 5,000 into people who are satisfied with bread. He goes and does an, an amazing amount of miraculous healing powers, raising and raises the dead. He heals the man born blind. He heals the man who's lame for 38 years. He heals uh, the, he casts out the demons from the demoniac. He heals the epileptic boy. All through the synoptics, there are these aspects of the Lord healing the woman with the issue of blood who is not only not healed for 12 years, but impoverished and trying to get healed. The Lord comes into each of these situations with everyday glory. As he encounters them, he does what they cannot do for themselves, and that is to heal them. But that same sense of everyday glory, if you will, of Jesus being in our lives, doing what we cannot do for ourselves, is where I find this encouraging to me, and I trust it is encouraging to you. Really, if, if you're a person who's taking notes and makes points, here's the first point. Jesus cares deeply about the important things in our lives. It's easy to lose sight of that if, we're my, if our minds are always on the macro issues, the big pictures things that are going on in our world. Sometimes it's, we can understandably wonder, is God involved in what's going on for me? Does he care about what's happening at work? Does he care about this estranged relationship that I'm, I, you know, at times I want it to be healed, other times I just want to be done with it. These are things that occupy our mind. And I want to say, and it, because I think the miracle at Cana tells us this, that he deeply cares 
about the important things in our life. It's so, and he knows, it's not like these things surprise him. Even if Jesus is a little surprised initially by his mother's request, he knows that he can take care of it. He knows how he's going to be involved in each and every one of our situations. That he goes before us. That our, our best response is to follow him. The Lord uses the ordinary, the routine, the Cana aspects of our existence to daily train us in his, in his training ground is to develop us, to encourage us, to equip us, to take that same glory that he's showing in our lives and then display it in the lives of other people. The disciples are witnessing this firsthand. They see the Lord acting. You know who actually sees this miracle? It's a limited group of people. It's the disciples who see it. It's the servants who got the water, and that's it. The best we can tell, Mary knows and, and Jesus knows. The wedding party who's blessed by it, they don't know. The family of the wedding folk, we don't know, knew a thing. Even the wine steward doesn't seem to know where this came from. And isn't that like the Lord to bless us in ways that we didn't anticipate? There are many blessings in our lives, many ways that God is working that we do not know. And it would behoove us just to say, Lord, I'm going to stop talking for a minute and just listen to you, how you're speaking to me. What, uh, help, me to under, help me to see your everyday glory in my life. Help me to see how you're leading me. I think we all have stories about how that is. Think about uh, a story about if, if you're married, how you met your spouse. Or you have a job that you really like, how you got that job. Or if you're a performing artist or like doing that, how you got your first opportunity and first time on the, the set list or the card, whatever it's called. We all can look back, I think, and see how God was inter intervening, how he was working. I was thinking, Vicky and I were talking about this. I'm like, honestly, the way we got together was definitely God. Here's the story. Um, Vicky, as you guys know, mostly, is English. So we met in England. We went to the same church. We were in two different university programs. She had a year to go. I was just there for a year. So when the summer came of her, of her year and my year, she and a friend went to Europe. June, time to go to Europe. I got to be back here in August and do this all over again. I'm done, almost done, not quite done, actually not close to done. I needed to spend the rest of the summer just doing this paper, this dissertation that was due. And so Vicky and I had arranged to meet in some town in France. Like, yeah, just you guys are coming back, you and your friend, and I'm going to start. Let's just meet there and have a day of action. I'm going to go on. And my plan was to, now that I'd finished, was to go do my little Europe trip and then go home, go back to California. But if I'm honest, I'm like, that might be something going on. I don't know. We'll see. But I missed the rendezvous in, in this little town in France. So I'm on the phone, or Vicky's on the phone, and she said, well, the last stop we have, we're in Paris, and my friend and I were going to be there. We're going to hang out there for three days, and then we're coming to London. So I finally got this paper done. Who knows what it said? Uh, it passed, so that's a plus. And I got on the train and got to see her and her friend in Paris. So when I got there, we went sightseeing. Vicky, her friend, and me went to the Eiffel Tower. And then Vicky, her friend, and me went to the Jeux de Palme. 
and Vicky, her friend, and me went on the bateau mouche. It was fantastic. Vicky, her friend, and me. On the day before they were about to go, the, the morning of that, the, our last full day together, I am praying. I'm like, Lord, I'm happy to say something if you give me the opportunity. I, but right now, it's Vicky, her friend, and me. There isn't much of an opportunity. And so we set out and we go to some other sightseeing thing. And it's only, it's, you know, maybe 10 or 11 in the morning. And Vicky's friend says, you know what? I'm not really feeling very well. I think I'm going to go back to the apartment. I've never been so happy about a person's <laughs> illness or demise in all my life. Vicky says, you know what? I, we'll go back with you. I'm like, no. <laughs> Call the cab. Here's 10 francs. Bye. So she did, our, her friend left, and Vicky and I had the conversation that God had ordained us to have, which was, I'm feeling these things, and she's like, I'm feeling some things, and we should kind of see where God takes that. The next day, they went to London. I went on my trip, long distance, but that was the start. I didn't know God had any of that planned. I knew some things, I was totally open-handed about it, but this sign of God's everyday glory obviously significant in our lives, just our lives. If, if John had written about the wedding of Cana, we wouldn't know. If I hadn't told you about this, who would know? A, a small circle of people, but significant to us. God is more than just five steps ahead. He knows what he's doing in our life. He knows the blessings, the everyday glory that he wants us to see. I say that to encourage us so that we don't let the challenges that we all face in so many ways drag us down, prevent us from seeing that he is at work. If we move in, into that sense of knowing God the way that he presents himself in this, in this um, changing of the water into wine, we will begin to experience more what his mother did. She has full confidence in Jesus' ability and his will to do something. She just only has to say, here's the situation. Doesn't ask him to do anything, doesn't plead for him, doesn't, doesn't do anything other than make him aware. And then she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. So she's not suggesting any, anything to him. How often do we like to kind of map it out for God, just in case he's not listening to us, just in case he didn't quite get all the details, he didn't get the whole punch list of stuff that we really need done. I want him to do what he wants to do in his way. The mother of Jesus models that for us. And it's why um, as we see his everyday glory on display in our life, we can be more in that place of trust and more in that place of saying, Lord, I know that you know what I need. So I'm going to just trust in you and you're going to work it out the way you wanted to. And this is why trials that we face, surprises that we experience, setbacks that have occurred, or mysteries that are in our lives, we're not quite sure how this is going to go. These are gateways to experiencing the everyday glory of God. It is all part of the way he works in our life. And this is why the Lord puts us sometimes into seemingly insurmountable situations, insurmountable situations, the existential threats so-called not for us to be rescuers or mini messiahs, but just uh, as if we're going to do this all on our own, but just to be part of God's plan of everyday glory 
that when combined with others in the church is also part of his plan to do recreation, to do healing in our world, in our society, in our relationships that only he can do. We, we cannot do it. We can just be, just say yes to him. So that's my hope and my prayer for us. Looking around the world for solutions, we mostly see problems that are, uh, can be overwhelming, as David Brooks admits in his own column. But we do not grieve as the world grieves, says the scripture, because we're not without hope. Instead, we, the encouragement, which will be what we need for our own specific lives, but also to be used in God's greater picture, is to say, Lord, just let me see, let me apprehend, let me know your everyday glory in my life. Let me have that confidence that you've worked all things out in accordance with your will. And I do not need to be afraid. I just need to be faithful. And to know that even when there's times where I, I, I doubt and I get concerned and I fear and I want to map it out for you, I don't need to do that. And you graciously receive me back with love and forgiveness. As we do that, we will see the Lord use us more and more. And we will experience his everyday glory so that we become what we've always been meant to be, his vessels of everyday glory in the lives of others. Amen. Thanks for being with us online in the Sermon Podcast. To find out more about Holy Trinity Silicon Valley, head to www.holytrinitysv.org.